This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. This morning I want to, to take a little bit of time and to think about an issue that um, is increasingly something that I think we're going to have to face in our day and to, to try to understand where we are and to understand uh, a biblical perspective on it. I want to introduce you to uh, Fox and Alex. Any of you ever heard of this couple before? Um, look like a normal couple, you, you would assume, uh, boyfriend and girlfriend. But in fact, they are a uh, trans non-binary couple who do not identify as male or female. The first time I encountered them and really the most of interaction I've ever had uh, was a video they put out in which they were describing some of the challenges they face. Uh, they live over in Britain. And uh, one of the challenges they talked about was not really even always being accepted by the LGBTQ community because um, they look and act as if they were a man and a woman. And in fact, they aren't. And so people assume they must be actually just normal people and they're not they're actually homosexual, but they say, well, we're not male or female. And so some of that, but the, the major issue was just trying to figure out what to even call each other. They couldn't call each other boyfriend and girlfriend. And so just wrestling through what kind of words they could use to describe their relationship and their interaction with each other. Or perhaps uh, you may have heard of this a couple of years ago in Time Magazine. There was a, a headline about this lady talking about her brother's pregnancy. And in that story, she had this line. What if you are born into a female body, know you are a man, and still want to participate in the traditionally exclusive right of womanhood? What kind of man are you then? Which I think is an important question to consider. And that's what I want us to think about today. These are the kinds of things we're seeing in our society, in our culture. And so how should we think of it? I want to start off by, by just uh, defining a few key terms to understand uh, what's being said in our culture and then to be able to, to try to think uh, biblically about these things. So, so first is, is the question of gender identity. And this is not my necessarily language. This is the language that's being used out there. And generally, there are two primary categories. There's a third that is um, receiving uh, more and more um, emphasis. One is cisgender. How many of you ever heard of cisgender before? Most of you in here. Um, I would imagine most of you would be considered cisgendered individuals. A cisgendered person is someone whose subjective gender identity matches with your objective biological sex. And so if you are sexually male and you identify as a man, you are cisgender, uh, same thing for female. Transgender would be those whose subjective sense of their identity uh, conflicts or clashes with the objective reality. Now the third, um, and, is, and we'll touch on this a little bit later, Generally, what I mentioned with that couple at the beginning would be non-binary. That um, they don't necessarily identify either as male or female, but they tend to get 
thrown in with the category of transgender because the point there would be to say that their sex doesn't necessarily match up with how they think of themselves in a gendered way. Gender dysphoria is the uh, current clinical term for the condition of those who are transgender. It used to be uh, called a gender identity disorder in the diagnostic uh, manual. And in the last one that came out, they changed it to gender dysphoria. And why? Well, not necessarily because of any science, but primarily because of political and cultural pressures. And now the focus has moved. If you think gender identity disorder, that's saying there is a problem with your gender identity. Now, that's not the problem. The problem is the sense of confusion that you have because your body doesn't match with what your gender is. And so now the focus is on how do we deal with the sense of tension that we feel because this is true of you. Um, and so that's, that's generally what's being used. I, I, so I'll tell people, and I, I, I tend to, to like the way they said it, that because this seems to imply that there's nothing wrong with the gender identity, the problem is only the, the challenges you face in light of it, that they prefer uh, language like gender incongruence or something like that, uh, which is pointing out there is a problem actually at play. Where this uh, flows out of is largely our, our culture's view of gender. And, and there's probably two broad ways in which our culture thinks about gender. One would be biological essentialism. That's what your biology is defines your gender. And so this is what your biology is, this is what your gender is. The second would be psychological essentialism. And in this kind of position, uh, your objective biology is irrelevant. What really matters is the way you think, what your mind is like. That's what ultimately defines who you are. So, on this level, your sex determines your gender. On this, what determines your gender? And, and there's a variety of things, but, but ultimately, it, it, I think the, the primary idea is it's, it's chosen on some level. Uh, some people would say that perhaps it's determined, but the problem with it being determined is what's going to determine it, your biology. And so you kind of fall back into biological essentialism. And so it seems largely the focus then is to say that we aren't necessarily created or formed in some way but that uh, we decide for ourselves or perhaps um, uh, are shaped through society to, to think about ourselves in some way. But ultimately, it's, it's flowing out of the way we think and the way we feel. And that's why it's subjective. That there's nothing that no one else could look at and say, this is what it is. It's only uh, in light of our own thinking and our own mind. Which means that in the end, there's ultimately an, an in, almost infinite possibility of gender identity. A few years back, Facebook came out and talked about how you could now identify in your true expression, and they offered 50 different options for uh, gender identity. Tumblr currently lists 114 different gender options. And you might wonder where all these are, and I po couldn't possibly list all of them, but uh, you have you know, 
you have male, you have female, uh, you would have trans, you would have um, non-binary, gender queer. There's a whole host of different ways in which you could think about yourself and what you are today doesn't necessarily define what you would be later on. And that's why there's a fluidity to this. In fact, some people have started to, to dub uh, the younger generation, sometimes combining millennials and Gen Z into a, the gender fluid generation, in which there's this idea that you can uh, really move along in between these different categories. So what should we think about this biblically? And I think first of all, we need to recognize that God created two genders. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. And here man is, I think, talking of generically of humanity. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. That, that the focus there, if you can say it this way, would be something close to the way we would think about gender. That there are two aspects humanity. One is male, one is female. We see this even after the fall. On the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. And, and it's interesting to me, often people will try to say things like, well, Jesus never talks about uh, homosexual marriage, or Jesus never talks about these issues. And yet Jesus does explicitly say in Matthew 19 this very same thing. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then goes on to say, and that's why a man should take his wife and become one flesh. That, that at the very heart of Jesus' teaching about marriage is the idea that you have male and you have female. And that's it. There's no other category in Scripture. There's not three options. There's not 50 options. There's not 114 options. Male and female. Now, a question often comes up. What about intersex? Has anyone ever heard about this issue? Helps few of you. Intersex is a term that's, that's used to categorize several uh, examples of what are called disorders of sex development that affect the human reproductive system. It's a really relatively uh, minor, it's a small percentage of people, that one in a thousand births, and, and there's varying levels of how it manifests itself. Uh, generally, it involves chromosomal abnormal abnormalities. So this is from Denny Burke, What's the Meaning of Sex? It can involve uh, chromosomal abnormalities, such as men are typically uh, XY, women are XX, but instead X, O or XXY or XXXY or, or things like that. Uh, often it is associated with ambiguous genitalia, uh, hormonal difficulties, or perhaps all of these things together. And so this whole category uh, is sometimes lumped together and it's called intersex. And so many people have said this is evidence that there aren't just men and women because you have these kinds of people who uh, had couldn't necessarily wasn't clear whether it was a boy or a girl and so therefore we know there are more than just men and women and and what typically happens in these situations 
is the doctor would decide uh, what would uh, the child, what would be the easiest way to, to deal with the genitalia through surgery, what can we make him or her look more like a boy or like a girl, would do some kind of surgery and then say, it's a boy or it's a girl. I think increasingly the way that it's being dealt with is to focus more on the actual chromosome than the a physical reality. But the problem is what's, what's being described here is the exact opposite of what we just talked about earlier. Because in the discussion of gender identity, what is not defined? Your biology and your body. What is? Your psychology. And so you could not claim that intersex in any way supports the concept of gender identity. Because it actually is, you're at that point in time saying, actually your biology is what determines your sex. And even in this situation, I think what most people are recognizing is if you have the Y chromosome, you're male. And, and I'd say it this way, two, two truths in light of this. That yes, even in intersex, you're really only dealing with two basic categories, male or female, and you're saying it's hard to decide if they fall into one of these two, but we're still saying it falls into one of these two. It's kind of the exception that proves the rule. And most people with this condition don't want to be included in this movement in the LGBTQ community because they want to recognize that they are either male or female, not that somehow there's something different from them. And so these, are these people are wrongly being uh, connected in. I think as well from a Christian perspective, we would recognize that this is an example of the fact that we live in a fallen world. That, that the reality is sometimes people are born with disorders in their regular body. That there are problems that have developed because of sin. And not necessarily because of these individual sins. Think about Jesus. Why was this man born blind? Well, it's not because of his sin or his parents' sin necessarily. Specifically for him, it was to demonstrate the glory of God. But these are the kinds of things that happen sometimes. Your eyes don't work. Something may be wrong in these kinds of situations. But this doesn't undermine the consistent biblical teaching that there really are only two kinds of people, male and female. I think as well we could say that the Bible would indicate that our gender is based on our biology. That not only are there only two genders, but how do you know which gender you are? It's your body. Your biology is what tells you what you are. And, and in some ways, I don't want to make too much of this, but it is interesting in Genesis 1, when God makes men, he makes them male and female. And then what happens in Genesis 2, where he actually makes a man and a woman? And showing that the same idea. What is male? It's to be a man. What is female? It's to be a woman. And that's in large part because Scripture consistently portrays us as a union of both body and soul. So in, this, in the gender identity movement, the idea is you have a body that is somehow separate from who you really are. Your authentic self is unrelated to your physical body. And so that's why you can be a woman trapped in a man's body. Or you could be a man trapped in a woman's body. 
because who you really are isn't your body, it's your spirit, it's your soul. In fact, you can even find people who say, I identify as a spirit, and that's why I'm neither male nor female. But the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. That we aren't a soul in a body, we are a soul and body. You see several paces, uh, uh, verses to, to notice this. just want to highlight one here and, and reference another. Psalm 139. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Now when he's talking about my inward parts, and you wove me in my mother's womb, what is he talking about? He's talking about his physical body. Now he doesn't say simply you formed my body, but you formed me. This is me that was happening there. I am fearfully and wonderfully. It's not my body that is. I am. And when he says my soul knows it very well, he's not trying to say something different from this. It's the same idea in 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, in the King James, it, it translates uh, the, the verse that few, that is, eight souls were saved by the ark. Almost all the modern translations say eight persons. And, and, and I think it's helpful to translate it that way because it avoids any confusion. But it's not like Peter, by using the word soul, which is the word he, he does use there, is somehow indicating that their bodies were left behind, that something else was actually saved on the ark. Soul is simply a, a way of shorthand of you. In the same way that your body is also you. That consistently the Bible would say there is not a distinction between these two. Additionally in the Bible, there is a prohibition against what we might call gender bending. Deuteronomy 22.5 A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now I think it's the recognition here of several things that are kind of assumed. There's an assumption you're going to know who a woman is, you're going to know who a man is. You're also going to be able to know that women dress in a certain way and men dress in a certain way. Now, this verse is a verse that you may have heard used and abused to argue against things like uh, women shouldn't wear pants. And I think in some settings and cultures, you could say that principle would certainly be true. If pants are clearly a man's clothing, then women should not wear it. Because the idea is there are certain appropriate and cultural ways to express who you are as a man or as a woman. I think that's a very similar thing to what's happening in 1 Corinthians 11. Yes, this is in the Mosaic Law, but the principle we see carried out in a place like 1 Corinthians 11 as well. There's some debate, obviously, about exactly what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the head covering for women, but to me it seems very clear at least what he's saying is there are certain things that men are to do and to behave and dress, and there are certain ways that women are to do and behave and dress. And for you to violate those things is an affront to God's very nature. So I think the scripture consistently points to the fact that men and women are not to try to look as if they are not either a man or a woman. Not to act as if they are different from who God made them to be. And beyond those things, 
Over and over again, the scripture assumes men and women would be readily recognized as different. Leviticus 12. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then shall she be unclean for seven days. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks. Now, in our day, we'd have to say, well, you're not going to know for at least you know, ten years. But obviously, the answer is, well, you know right away. And in fact, even people in our day who are trying to argue against this inevitably fall back on it. I saw a CNN article a couple years ago about a couple in uh, Portland. And the headline was, uh, Transgender Man Gives Birth to a Baby Boy. And the transgender man is obviously someone who is female, who identified as, as a male, and was now living with someone who was a man. And they decided to, to have a baby together. And so even though, obviously, had treatments and stuff, in some ways identified as man, similar to this Time magazine and deciding to have a baby, and the baby comes out, and they named the baby Leo, and they were talking about, we're so excited to raise him. Now, if you ask them, how do you know that you're a, not a woman, but a man? And they would tell you things like, well, it's not based upon your body, and, and you know, I was wrongly assigned the idea of being a, a male, a woman at birth, I'm actually a, a man. And what do they do with their baby? It's a boy. And they name Leo. Because reality hits you in the face. You can't avoid it as much as you might try to. Numbers 27, if a man dies and has no son, you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. Again, this is a clear recognition. Who's a son? Who's a daughter? Several passages in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls, or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. And so here, there's a recognition. There are men, we know they're men, they're to act in certain ways. There are women, we know they're women, they're to act in certain ways. That includes even some of how they would adorn themselves. First Timothy 5.1, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. To the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, to the younger women as sisters in all purity. And, and Timothy obviously wouldn't say, well, Paul, I have no idea of knowing who the older men and women are, who the younger men and women are. Paul would say, well, and Timothy, it's kind of obvious, don't you think? <laughs> and so, treat them in this way. Titus 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, seeking what is good, so that may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. And all of these not only assume that you would readily know who men and women are, but also assume that there are appropriate ways to manifest your maleness and your femaleness. And so I think it's very clear that the Bible consistently teaches there are two genders. There's male and female. Those genders are based upon your body. It's your biology that tells you whether or not you are a male or a woman. And 
therefore you are to live in light of that truth. But what about gender dysphoria or gender incongruence? How do we understand someone who comes to you and says, my body is a man's body, but I feel like a woman? Or vice versa. My body is a woman's body, but I feel like a man. I know I'm really a man. Or I'm really neither. You realize that both the secular world out there and biblical Christians recognize there's a problem here. There's an incongruence. The secular world says, here's the problem, it's your body. And so what's the solution? Change your body. And this is a, a huge issue in our day. Because you have doctors and physicians and a whole host of people who are arguing very strongly that the moment someone comes to you and says something like this, that you need to start helping them to change their body. Even at the very young, you need to start giving them something to suppress the hormonal development that they have. And if a parent decides not to go on with that, there are examples in which governments have even stepped in and taken away their children. And so, you need to change your body. You need to cross-dress. You need to have some kind of gender reassignment surgery. And yet, statistics say that 80% of children who who experience gender dysphoria or gender incongruence in childhood no longer experience it as adults. But yes, there's a period of time in which you have young people who are saying, I'm not sure, but I'm in my right body. But the vast majority of them eventually come to recognize, yeah, there's no problem here. Now, there's actually something that, that people are looking at in our society right now and saying it seems to be a rise of a basically mass gender dysphoria movement in which you have a whole group of, primarily it's been girls, who altogether have all of a sudden decided they aren't in their right body. You may have seen this because about a year ago, uh, someone published research about this and talking about this, this reality. It was criticized left and right. Uh, the, the place that published it actually said, we're going to do a post-publication review, which is almost never done. To, to basically because this isn't giving us the results that we want. And so they take it, they went all through this, and you probably didn't know it, but very recently it was published again with no changes in the results. There's a few things added in here and there to make context, to provide context, but the results are the same. It was published again because this is something that we're beginning to see happen. And the reality, too, is that when you change your body, very often it doesn't actually help you. Sometimes Christians and people who would, would say that your identity needs to fall in line with your body are accused of actually leading people to suicide. That you aren't allowing them to be their true selves, and so therefore you're harming them, and they're ultimately going to, to end up in great destruction. But Paul McHugh, who was the uh, senior psychiatrist at John Hopkins University for several years, did a major study 
I read several movies, but he looked at one specifically that was done in Sweden over 30 years. And Sweden is, is a country that's far more embracing of these kinds of things in a place like America. And they studied those who actually had gone through sex reassignment surgery. And 10 to 15 years after the surgery, the suicide rate rose to 20 times compared to their peers who didn't undergo sex reassignment surgery. The reality is changing your body doesn't help. What's the problem? The problem isn't your body. The problem's in your perception. I, I feel like I'm a woman, even though my body says I'm a man. Well, don't change your body. What's the answer? Embrace your body and work to change the way you think about it. Work to accept the body that God has given you and act in light of it. So if I could just conclude with, with four thoughts of, uh, of what this means for us and for others who perhaps are wrestling with this. First is to live in your body to glorify God because it's not yours. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Your body is not a mistake. Your body is not a problem. Your body is something that God has given you, and He wants you to use it to glorify him. And don't lie pretending to be something you're not. I want to highlight verses like Colossians 3 here. In part because I think the answer to this isn't necessarily completely different than the answer to a lot of sin problems that we face. It's not like we need specific things specifically for those who are struggling with this. What we need are the same kinds of truths. We need to recognize things like we need to put off our old self with its evil practices, which is focused on not the truth, but on lying to one another. And so when you act or you dress like something you're not, you're lying. You're not living in accordance with the truth. And those are the kinds of practices that characterize those in the fallen world. But as Christians, we need to recognize we're being renewed in the image of the one who created us. You were made, you were formed by God. So therefore, we need to live in light of the truth of who we are. And don't covet. Don't long for a body that's not yours. Here again, Colossians 3. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, or covetousness, which amounts to idolatry. That when you look and say, I wish that my body were different, you're wanting something God decided not to give you. I wish I was a man. Well, God made you a woman. I wish I were a woman. God made you a man. Don't long for something that God did not give you. But instead, be thankful for God's purposes, which are best. If I could add this in as well. But the glorious truth is that all of us have violated God's purposes. None of us have truly glorified God in our bodies the way we should that we, all of us, have fallen away from the truth. All of us have lived in lies. All of us have coveted. And God doesn't say, once you get all that in order, then come to me. God says, 
you're broken. But I take those forgiveness. But he doesn't keep them broken. So those who are struggled with this, those who have even undergone surgeries or these kinds of treatments, the great truth is he can come right now to Jesus Christ. And he can forgive you. And that he will enable you to begin to live for him, embracing the truth of who you really are and glorifying him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it gives. Thank you for the hope that it gives. We ask that you would help us to try to think in line with your word. And to help so many in our world who are being told lies that are ultimately destructive. That we would have the boldness and the grace the truth and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us to seek to honor you with who we are, because you have made us really well. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Inner City Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.